preaching in Jesus' name this morning. I was challenged by the Sunday school lesson and how do I view life? Do I view life in a positive way or do I expect the worst? Do I appeal to others the good in others? The message this morning is entitled Proper Methods of Bible Interpretation and uh, this, assi- this assignment was given to me for a uh, speaking engagement in Maryland at the end of this month. So, you know, if you ever feel like you're a guinea pig, um, the fact of the matter you are. So, <laughs> I try my sermons out on the people at home first, so anyhow. Proper methods of Bible interpretation, and I, I if you recall, uh, I think it's sometime in the last year that Arnie went through something very similar to this, and he gave us, I believe, uh, ten points, um, the golden rule of interpretation, uh, interpreting passage in the historical context, comparing scripture with scripture, and... Uh, he had a very ably showed us how to properly interpret scripture. <clears throat> I'm told that uh, as I addressed, as I thought about this subject, I, I was, I, I remembered something that somebody said, and I'm not sure, I think it was John Slaybaugh at a, uh, minister's study week or a minister's meeting somewhere along the line and he said that the Anabaptists for the most part were not great theologians they did not have a written theology Uh, they were common people but they were excellent in their ability to take the scriptures and apply them to their lives and uh I guess that's a comfort to me because I don't consider myself a great intellectual. Neither do I consider myself a great theologian. Uh, however, um, I don't want to use that as an excuse to be ignorant of what the Bible says. But the simple fact that our Anabaptist forefathers, for the most part, were not educated people and they apply the scripture very well into their lives, proves the fact that you don't have to have a lot of great theological education in order to be successful as a Christian. And, uh, and so, and, and I was thinking about, you know, where my, we all have a, a, a theology, a, a way of approaching the scriptures, a way of thinking about the scriptures, where did that all start? Uh, what kind of a theological school did, did we go to? Now, we, had, we got theological learning of some sort. Where, where did it come from? And I think that probably the first theological um, professor, or what's the, uh, is that gender neutral? There's no such thing as professoress. Okay. Uh, the greatest, well, the first professors that I sat under would have had to have been my mom and my dad. Uh, 
And then I think of the other professors, which were uh, my Sunday school teachers at Rife's Church. Uh, they would dismiss the classes, and we'd all go up to the right beside the pulpit, and then we'd go in the room, and then we'd go up a stairwell this, stairway this way, and a stairway that way, and up. This church was way high. They had the Sunday school rooms above the coat rooms and the, and the I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That profess that is theologically correct. Our professors this morning did very, very well. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And uh doesn't matter how we interpret the scripture. We sang just the last song, Into Our Hands the Gospel is Given, and it says it's a precious thing. So I started out, and I'm thinking, well, I've got to, you know, I'm talking in the East Coast, so we have great theologians, all right? Uh, <clears throat> this little guy from Minnesota goes to Pennsylvania and tells him how to interpret scripture. Uh, I, a little intimidating. Just, you know. And furthermore, this is a conference, and so the, the preachers are all getting together for their big meeting, the service right before I'm supposed to speak. So we have all these preachers. and uh, So I got all these books out on hermeneutics and exegesis, and, and I'm starting to dive into all this stuff. And, and then I find out, well, the people that write these books can't figure out whether exegesis come before hermeneutics or hermeneutics come before exegesis. And one says it's one way, one says the other way, and, and one says, well, the other one has to bend the terms in order to, to, for, this to, for their definition to be right. And I finally come to the conclusion, conclusion that exe, uh, hermeneutics come before exegesis, and I get another book out that says, oh, no, exegesis comes before hermeneutics. And I say, oh, wait a minute, you know, wait a minute here. And, and I'm looking into the... the uh, Sam Troyer, you know, he teaches Bible study skills in the Bible school, and I'm supposed to pack three weeks of intense study on how to study the Bible into 45 minutes and get all these details down the pack. And uh, then I thought, you know, what is our greatest need anyhow? Do... Uh, do we have problems? I mean, are, are we crippled with not enough information, not enough books, not enough reference materials to go back and figure out what these words mean in the Scripture? Um, I, I don't think we do. I think we have lots and lots and lots of resources to take care of the details of of the original language and all that, all that kind of thing. Now, I was in Mexico one time, and uh, was at a pastor's place, and his library was all this long. Uh, I think, yeah. And I, honestly, honestly, I really, really, really felt bad. On the other hand, he may have had a, an advantage. The reason I, what I felt bad about was the ability to go to find out what words mean, you know, and that type of thing. The, the, 
not not to, not that he didn't have a commentary this long like I do, which pretty much gathers dust and uh, whatever. But I go once in a while and. Um, Are those the barriers that we don't have enough resources, or are there other barriers that are that we face interpreting the scriptures? So this sermon may be quite um, unconventional when it comes to Bible interpretation. But I would suggest that we meet on a spiritual level rather than an intellectual level in this message. To start with, I believe we need to address some very basic foundational truths. And I have ten of them here this morning. I don't know how many are, but I have, I have ten. And uh, we will look at those. Bible, and, and as I look at this, I wonder where, you know, it's like, what's first, the chicken or the egg? You know, anybody answer that question? Chicken or the egg? That's the, that's the old question. Uh, can you interpret the Bible without a frame of reference? Could you accurately term, interpret the Bible accurately without knowing the Bible? Without having knowing anything about the Bible? It's difficult. It would be difficult. You need to become acquainted with the Bible before and get the basic truths of the Word of God before we can interpret them correctly. And so, basic and foundational... And I don't think we really have a problem with this, uh, the first one maybe, but proper method of interpretation requires me to embrace the fact that this Bible is the authentic, authoritative, and it constitutes the Word of God for us today. I, I don't think we really battle with that, you know, uh, and some faith do, or some people do, you know, it contains the Word of God. So, it's, so you know, we, we, we sort through here, and, you know, and yeah, yeah, that would sound like what God's saying, but no, 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 no. Uh, that, that don't really, that, that wouldn't make sense that God would say that. So, you know, he starts, I don't think we really have that problem, but we have to, we have to understand, we have to remember that this is it. Whatever this says, that's it. And really, honestly, I can attempt to take from or add to this Bible. But it is a futile attempt because I cannot do that. I don't care. The whole world, every single person in the world could gang up and try to change the Word of God, but the Word of God says it liveth and abideth forever. You cannot change it. I cannot change it. I can interpret it correctly. I can decide to interpret it incorrectly. But it simply does not change it. This is the truth that we will be judged by. This is the truth that we will face in the judgment. What 
that I do with the Word of God and the, and the Son of God, which is Jesus Christ? That's the question. It will be there. There is nothing going to change it. So we have to believe that the Bible is authentic. Number two, if I'm going to properly interpret the Scriptures, it will require not only that the, the Bible be authentic, but I be authentic to the core. Basic to, uh, to Bible interpretation requires a person to be born again. We need to be Christian to the core. In that transformation of the new birth, we get a new mind, we get a new spirit, and that Holy Spirit that enters within us enables us to take from the pages of the Scripture the truth in the same manner that God motivated people by the Holy Spirit to put them on there. That was, that was an act of God. And if you turn with me to 1 Corinthians 2, the Bible speaks specifically to this point. 1 Corinthians 2.11 For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man that is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man, but the Spirit of God. Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us by God. Of God, pardon me. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man... Receiveth what? Not. The things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is judged of spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is judge of no man. For who hath known the mind of God, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Brothers and sisters this morning, we have the ability on a daily basis to experience the miraculous working of the Holy Spirit in our lives to, take, to be able to read the Word of God and assimilate it by the Holy Spirit. I, I'm telling you, I, you get a hold of that. We have blessings that we take for granted are incredible. Incredible. Number three. Proper Bible interpretation requires a simplicity of the heart committed to simple obedience. And as I read uh, about the Anabaptists and their theology and so forth, um, I think that, that, that describes the typical Anabaptist. Simplicity of heart and simple obedience. The 
There is a sobering fact here. That taking the scripture, teaching the scripture, with an improper mindset, has the ability to destroy our faith. You see, we can take this, and we can analyze it, and we can dissect it, and simply drown in all the potential meanings of what's being said here. Or, we can take them all, and we can figure out what is the only one that's right. Now, everybody else who believes different than me automatically are wrong. All right? Because they never really studied all the details of all this. See? So, so everybody else knows automatically wrong, so we can, we can drown in our theological education, or we can drown in our own personal pride. That's, that's a potential. For me, that, as, as a minister, that, that, is, that is sobering. Very sobering. That my study can become directionless and fruitless if I do not have a heart of simplicity and obedience. It is just a mechanical exercise. Number four, proper Bible interpretation requires the exercise of humility. I've said over this pulpit multiple times that humility is the foundation of every Christian grace. It is it's the foundation of every Christian grace. You can take any grace in the Bible. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, all those. You add, chide, you add pride to it, and it's done right there. It's done. It's all over. And that's the way it is with interpreting the Scripture. We need to understand where we are in relation to God. We need to understand that pride is the cause of The loss of every Christian virtue and pride is a result of every sin. And so if I'm going to get anything out of the scripture, I need to approach it in humility. Because without humility, we can have no faith, we can have no salvation, we can have no knowledge of ourself in, to, in relation to what we're being, being studied, uh, what we're studying. God doesn't have the ability to show me who I am. And the Bible is very plain, very plain in the fact that the meek will he, uh, let's say, lead in judgment, the meek will he teach his way. That's, that is foundational. You see, I have to understand, I have to be willing to accept, first of all, what God said about himself, 
and I have to be willing to accept what he says about me. And so I can learn. I can teach all the proper methods of biblical interpretation with a proud heart. And it's dark as dark can be. Because pride blinds this is the light but if I'm blind I see nothing. Blind does not see light. And as someone has once said sometimes it's not so much what we know or what we don't know but it's how much we don't want to know. Do I want to know? Now the definition of humility is the proper attitude of the creature to his divine creator. You see, the Bible has the answers. The Bible has the answers. The question is, can I humbly accept those answers? But God is bigger than me. He does have the answers. I do need to answer to him. He put me here for specific reasons. I am accountable to him. I came from him, and I will end in one destination or another. Micah 6 8 says, He has showed thee, O man, what is good, and what did the Lord require of thee but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God with him not behind him not ahead of him with him so humility is humility is critical now somewhere along here uh, I needed to pause for a definition of terms so I think I'm going to do it now and I used hermeneutics and exegesis and some terms that I I don't know if I ever heard except at ministers meeting and uh, while I was diving into all this I, I I found some something interesting that I thought I would give to you and the hermeneutics and the exegesis and I'm not going to go get into which camp goes first and all this but but it's it's taking a text and it's Explaining the text, it's interpreting the text, it's to lead, the, the term exegesis means to lead, so you're moving stuff out of the text. Uh, it, it could be an exposition, it could be called an explanation, uh, interpretation of a text, that's, that's all involved in exegesis, if I understand it correctly. But in my studies, I found another word that I've never heard before, and I don't think I ever heard it at ministers meeting. 
It's called eisegesis. And eisegesis is an interesting word. The definition of eisegesis is the interpretation of a text as of the Bible by reading into it one, one's own ideas. So you have the exegesis, which is pulling the truth out of the Bible. The exegesis is the attempt to put my thoughts into there and say, well, this is actually what it's saying because of what I'm thinking. Now keep that in mind in the next point. Correct Bible interpretation rejects exegetical gymnastics. Now I heard that in ministers' meeting, and I thought that was kind of an interesting term. An attempt to bring truth out of the Bible, you really don't like what you see, so you start dancing around this truth. And so it's it's a uh, it's gymnastics around. Okay, so I really don't like what I'm seeing. I don't really want to put into that my own fuss because I know that's not right. So I'll just dance a while. Our natural attempt, and I would call that eisegesis, our natural inclination to want the Bible to say something that keeps me comfortable. And I think we all have to be honest enough to admit that there's enough carnality in all of us left that we could easily become involved in exegetical gymnastics. rather than allowing the truth to impact our life and live our lives as God wants us to. The temptation to twist the truth as an occasion to the flesh. And I've heard, thankfully not very often in my lifetime, I've heard people say, what the Bible is really trying to say is brothers and sisters we've already jumped through the first hoop of exegetical gymnastics when we say that it was said of the Anabaptists that they simply read the word and applied it not allowing themselves the comfortable position of believing one thing and practicing another you see, we tend to protect our comfort zones. That's our natural inclination. That's our carnal inclination to protect my comfort zones. But our Anabaptist forefathers did not allow themselves that privilege. Can I simply read it and apply it? despite how uncomfortable I could become? Am I that committed? Number six, correct Bible interpretation is rooted in brotherhood. 
of us, every one of us, every Christian, doesn't matter how old they are or how young they are, always has lots of room to grow in learning about brotherhood. I mean, we're all humans. We all have the, uh, relationships with each other and... Um, If we're interpreting the scripture, whatever God has called an individual to do must work in the brotherhood. Uh, the old saying is, whatever's good for the goose is good for the gander, right? And, and so, um, if I take what I believe the Bible says, and if I apply it to a group setting, and it doesn't work, then you better start backing up. Because the truth of God's word who has, mo who has uh, when the truth of God's word has impacted and motivated a brother or sister in the church, when that is applied in a brotherhood setting, it should be multiplied for good, not for bad. And so if I interpret the scripture to say, oh, well, you know, uh, uh, Paul here this morning, you know, he, he just kind of sm smoothed everything over it. You know, he's getting the best out of everybody. You know, he, 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 he that tells us he never, never makes waves, you know. And, and, and so we take that and we just run with it. Or we say, you know, Paul, he used sharp words. So I'm committed, you know, whenever something happens, I'm committed to be like Paul. I'm going to use sharp words. I'm going to tell you just how it was and how, you know, how, how you're supposed to behave. Our behavior multiplied by 100 in a congregation should work. God doesn't put things in the scripture multiplied by a hundred that doesn't work. It will always work if it's applied correctly. We call that unity of faith and practice. We call that, when we take God's word, we multiply by 100, and it works. Our faith is placed in Jesus Christ and the authority of the word of God. And we as a group carry that out in a crooked and perverse generation, in a world with all kinds of fluid values. When they see God's people corporately understanding the word of God, Applying it in a practical manner is a phenomenon. It is an incredible phenomenon. People who peacefully, humbly serve God together with deep resolve. You see, if I read the Bible, and it's just for me, and it doesn't matter about anybody else, it doesn't matter if it causes grief with everybody around me, and it doesn't matter, I'm on a tremendously dangerous road.
In fact, it's Second Peter 1. Second Peter 1 says, verse 20, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. It didn't come with one. It doesn't end with one. Number seven. Proper Bible interpretation requires a two-kingdom theology. And you've got both barrels of that a couple of weeks ago on the two-kingdom theology. But brothers and sisters, this morning, proper Bible interpretation requires a two-kingdom theology. We have to understand that there's a dichotomy between God and Satan. There's a dichotomy between the kingdoms. There is incompatibility with sin and holiness. The chasm between the world and its values and the church of Jesus Christ is a why. It's the difference between heaven and hell. It's a great gulf fixed between truth and deception. It's the difference between a Christian being transformed in the image of Christ and a non-Christian being deformed and twisted into the image of Satan. That's the difference. We cannot approach the scripture with the idea that it's all gray area and it doesn't make any difference. Because it does. We have to have a two-kingdom theology. Number eight. Proper Bible interpretation requires the, re the removal of the bulletproof glass wall. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard of the glass wall or not. Uh, in management, in business, the females say that in business, typically, there is a glass ceiling. They call it the glass ceiling. You rise up in management, up in management, up in management, till you hit the glass ceiling. Now, nobody will admit that it's there. You can see through it. You don't even know that it's there. But somehow the males above the glass ceiling take care, of the f take care that you don't get through the glass ceiling. So they, they say it's a they call it the glass ceiling. The term glass wall... And I've heard that occasionally, not as often. The ability to see through something but not move through it. Um, there was this unfortunate bird on the way to church this morning. I don't know if he's seeing through my windshield or not, but I guarantee you one thing, he didn't get through. And uh, I, I didn't look, but I, I, I'm sure he got a bellyache at least out of it. Uh, Probably didn't even survive, but you get the picture. The glass wall of, well, we always did it that way. Now, the Bible says this, but we always did it that way. Now, I'm not here to unroot or unhinge anybody. But in the, in the community I grew up, if they would still be doing it the way they always did, they wouldn't have any Sunday school. 
and they wouldn't have electric lights, they wouldn't have revival meetings, and they would still be preaching in German. And there's a possibility there might be a spittoon in the church somewhere mixed into that. Rumor has it. I, I called my brother and asked him if that's true, and he said, you know, uh, probably nobody in this, in this community could actually affirm that if you ask. Uh, but I'm told that there was. You know as well as I to question everything that we do as Mennonites is not good. On the other hand, uh, we have not arrived either. All right, we just simply haven't, and so you got to make sure that there's not a glass wall there. The second glass wall is the gl glass wall of social pressure. We may look at the scripture and we can say, you know. There could be multiple applications of the scripture. And there's many ways that we can look at it, but I know one way that it doesn't mean. And the reason why, why we say that's one way it doesn't mean, because if we actually did that, then we might be uh, associated with uh, charity. Wouldn't that be something? Or maybe... Um, the Hutterites. Or maybe um, Amish. Or Dunkard Brethren. Or whoever. And so because of the ramifications of the obedience and because of who else is doing it, we say, well, it can mean anything but that. Are we willing to obey despite what somebody else might say? The glass wall of fear. Um, we all have our comfortable way of doing things and maybe... Uh, security of just never changing anything. Security of never changing anything. Security of not thinking. Uh, or maybe it's the fear of not fitting in. Or the feel of fear of being alienated from the status quo. Status quo. Or the fear of sticking out like a sore thumb. What would happen if Prairie did something that none of the other Midwest churches did because of a Bible application? You know, I thought about that, sticking out like a sore thumb. <clears throat> and I don't think the Bible, I don't think the Anabaptists had a problem with that because they stuck out, stuck out like a sore thumb so, so bad to start with that whatever they did didn't make it any difference. I don't know. That, that's from, for what it's worth, the part. Number nine. 
So you have people that stuck, you know, they, you know, they, we always did it this way. Um, you know, we don't want to do it because of somebody else did it this way or, or, you know, we can't ever change. Or then you have another group of people and you have all kinds of people. Another group of people, and this next my, my ne in the next point. In contrast to all that, you have the people that try to <clears throat> prove their spirituality because they're different than everybody else. You know, so I got this Bible passage here, and I do it, and and you know, and, and so it makes me different from everybody in my church. But that just proves that they have, you know, the rest of the people have caught on yet. And people do odd and weird things because somehow by being different from everybody else in my local brotherhood makes me a better Christian. Number 10, which is the last one. Time to close. Proper Bible interpretation acknowledges that truth has two wings. I, as a Christian, cannot afford to hold to my personal understanding of a Bible passage without being willing to open myself up to my brothers and sisters in the church as to how they see that scripture in relation to all the rest of the scriptures. I cannot afford to do that. I can't afford to stub stubbornly do that. Even though we may feel like we are a Bible scholar of sorts or whatever it may be, in reality, how much do I know about this whole book in relation to how much there is to be known? And if I'm going to get a broader perspective of what all's in this book, what's God's message to me, then I have to tap, be willing to tap into the resources of my brother and sister around me so that I can get a broader understanding what God's will is, not only for me, but for all of us. And if I take one verse and I say, that is what the Bible says, that's what the Bible says, and I am refusing to hear anybody, any other verse that would balance that out, which would be the second wing of that truth, which allowed it to fly, if I stick with that, I'm in trouble, and everybody else is in trouble. Jesus said, it is written, and he also said, it is written again. It takes more than one verse in the Bible to teach a biblical truth, and it takes more than one person to interpret it. And it takes more than the bishop himself. And I wonder, how many divisions in churches happen because this side, uh, tenaciously, is that the right word? That's pronounced right? Tenaciously grabs two or verses or one verse or something, and another group tenaciously grabs this verse. And they are unwilling to admit that another verse would bear on what they believe.
You see, if I grab a verse and I hang on to it, not only do I cause problems here, but I'm ignoring verses over here that, if not taught, will lead us all into a perverted view of some Bible doctrine. Because not just that I ignored that, but the simple fact that it never got taught. And so, everyone loses. And if I'm over here, unwilling to address the other scriptures that bear on the subject, I am embracing a belief system that is incomplete and I by default start believing things or, or professing to believe things that I never put into practice because I'm ignoring these verses by neglecting them. So, truth flies on two wings, and we have to acknowledge. Despite personalities, the truth of God's Word. It's not who believes it, it is what it says, and how am I going to respond to it? I believe this morning, and there could be more points, but I believe if we could get these ten things down, do better in these ten areas, then I believe we'd be better qualified to get down to the intellectual hermeneutics and the, uh, and the uh, well, exegesis of the Scripture. foundational to interpreting scripture has a lot to do with my perspective, my relationship with God, my relationship to the truth, my relationship to my brother, my passion for the church, and my passion that every single Christian in my brotherhood lives a balanced, godly Christian life and serves God acceptably and finds their reward in heaven as being a Christian that has done well with God's approval.